2: Hi everybody, this is Stephen Siegel, your host at the New Books Network, and today we're on the channel New Books Eastern European Studies. I'm delighted today to be joined by Alida Naylor, the author of The Shadow in the East, Vladimir Putin, and the New Baltic Front, published by IB Taurus in 2020. Alita is a freelance journalist focusing on Russia and Eastern Europe, and her writing has appeared in The Guardian, New Statesman, Politico Europe, Freeze, Vice, among many others. Naylor has traveled to all corners of the Baltic states, and she's also lived in both St. Petersburg and Moscow, where she served as arts editor at the Moscow Times. She holds a BA in history and an MA in Russian studies. Welcome, Alita, to our podcast.
0: Hello,
1: Stephen. Thank you for having me. Well, um, let me start by
2: asking a question about this wonderful book involving Russia, Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, tackling everything at once um, in a a remarkable way. So what was it that motivated you um, to write this project?
1: Um, Well, as you can tell, I'm British, but I do have Estonian roots. And that's why my name is maybe not typical of a British person. Um, But actually, my primary areas of interest lay in, I suppose, contemporary Russian politics, 20th century art history, the Soviet Soviet Union. And so I moved there in 2011 to learn the language and study the history in more depth. So I've done some, um, some work on late imperial literature. At, as an undergraduate, and I kind of wanted to take my knowledge of Russia further. And I ended up staying in Russia and working there across 2011 to 2015. Um, and in that time, then the Crimea situation happened, where it was annexed after Euromaidan. Uh, <laughs> and um, with my Estonian roots, then I was kind of compelled to explore what the situation internationally would mean for the Baltic states after that? And especially when there was where even though Crimea was annexed, then there didn't seem to be a massive international response to that. So what that would mean for the Baltic states if maybe there would be any territory there that Russia would start to contest
2: So where does your story of the Baltics begin? What is the middle? And where is the end? Do
1: you mean in terms of the kind of general layout of the book?
2: Yes. So give our readers an idea of what period you wanted to concentrate on. Uh, I think that there is a lot of um, writing about 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18 in this. But uh, to what extent are you going back in Baltic history? And, And to what extent is this a history of the present? contemporary situation?
1: Um, I think my aim was to largely show how prevalent history still is in public memory in the Baltics. So it's more a modern interpretation of people's historic memory. So while it focuses on the 21st century, then I try to start out looking at the older generations and why the Baltics might have this complicated relationship with Russia in the present day and the trauma, I suppose, that they underwent during the Soviet occupation. And it's very easy to throw around terms like, I don't know, neo-Nazi and Russophobia with regards to the Baltic states, especially from the Russian side. But exploring the origins of that kind of complicated relationship is something I really wanted to focus on to understand from as many sides as possible.
2: Yeah and and I think one of the remarkable things that you do is to separate the Baltics. There there is an occasion and maybe an occasion by sloppy journalists to lump things together but um you you start with Estonian proverbs you talk with um people in Lithuania, really from all walks of life, really all across the, the socioeconomic divide. So um, how, how is it that you separate the three Baltic countries? What, what makes them similar and distinct from each other in your mind?
1: Um, I was especially fascinated by Lithuania because, A, it was the Baltic state I knew least about. I've had this kind of background familiarity with Estonia, which is the smallest one my whole life. But with Lithuania, they had this large nation mentality from the Grand Duchy period and the Polish-Lithuanian relationship too. And they also managed to I don't know they, they they still haven't really let let go of that, whereas Estonia's always been quite a small nation. In terms of its mentality, and like I said, the other in the introduction, you know, they're regarded as kind of slow and reserved and a little bit backwards, even though they are actually the most progressive in Europe, both socially and maybe economically too. Um, I felt that Latvia is almost, despite having the most complicated relationship with its Russian Russian speaking population, um, they seem to almost be most similar in terms of its style of governance to Russia and Latvia. So I found that particularly interesting too. And the different kind of attempts that the countries have made to address things like corruption, transparency, illustration processes, their own media, their own relationship with their Russian-speaking populations. It's it's very different in each country. And in Lithuania, then, um, it's a fairly kind of mild situation because the Russian-speaking population is very low there. And they all relate to them in very different ways, even though they are classed together as one lump. And the other major difference, of course, is the linguistic difference. So Latvian and Lithuanian are both Indo-European languages, whereas Estonian is finno ugric and linked to Finnish and Hungarian. And that kind of influences how they relate to their environment too.
2: Yeah, and I want to return to some of these issues that you brought up about corruption and and illustration a little bit uh, later on if we can um, I, I'm struck by these tropes of national suffering and triumph and popular memory but I, I want to, I want to find a human face to the story this is something that really preoccupies me in my own research on cartography and, and maps because maps erase humans right um, but but you have um, interviewed I think, over 150 people from all different places, border cities, small towns, um, those who are marginalized, those who are political elites. So in what way is your book not, let's say, a story about Putin? It is a story about Putin, but in in what way is it? Is it much more than that?
1: I would say Putin is kind of confined to one chapter, even though he is a lingering presence. And a lot of people in the Baltics do have different relationships with the idea of Putin. Like there are a few times where people overhearing me speaking to an interviewee would interrupt us and speak about how great Putin was and how awful Trump was. (laughs) And one of my interviewees just kind of made us drive off in frustration and take the interview somewhere else. Um, So He's kind of there in the background, but what I wanted to show mostly was how people's own pasts and their own family histories in this on this very kind of microscopic local level informed how they related to present-day geopolitics, including the situation in Crimea. And I was quite struck actually by the number of native Russians or Belarusians or Ukrainians who didn't support Putin, and the number of local or native populations who did support Putin. and That was something I didn't expect to find, and I found that very interesting, too. So hopefully, out of everything, it just serves to highlight the diversity of opinions and the nuance in the region.
2: Yeah. Um, I'm going to read a, a passage uh, from one of your early chapters in which you're, you're talking about this sort of interface between fiction and fact and life story and the media. I think it's, it's a nice illustration of what you're trying to get at with these micro-stories. On page 16, you wrote, The personal and inherited memories of violence from the era unsurprisingly spill over into the literary canon. In Finnish-Estonian author Sophie Oksanen's 2008 novel Purge, Both a guarded elderly woman and one of her younger relatives are subjected to sex crimes at the hands of Russians. The book describes the elderly woman's attempt to isolate herself from society while simultaneously managing to silently identify fellow survivors. Quote, From every trembling hand she could tell, there's another one. From every flinch at the sound of a Russian soldier's shout, and every lurch at the tramp of boots, her too. Could you talk about what what maybe you were trying to get at with profiling people like this? Though Those were the subject of, of these books.
1: Um, I think almost it was partially prompted by, well, not prompted, but it sort of ran in tandem with the Me Too eruption in the media. And... I was thinking about how in wartime, then it's going to be even more complicated to tell these stories. Even now, then these stories are only just starting to emerge. So I, I did actually try to interview Sophie Oxan and um, unfortunately we didn't get to meet in the end. I wanted to speak about like the wa- what um, she was drawing from when she was making these works of fiction. And I think it's something that's kind of almost silently understood in the female populations of the Baltics, but never really written about directly. And so, gathering evidence is, of course, incredibly difficult, next to impossible. But at the same time, there's this kind of feeling that it's there, and I kind of wanted to convey that sense, maybe.
2: Yeah. And how is it that you went about interviewing? Could you give our our readers, our listeners, an idea of your the method to your to your madness here? And how how was it that you ended up talking to? Let's say immigrant communities who left latvia for the for the United States, or russophone populations who remained what was your your process of mental selection
1: um well i w- I opened the book speaking to Felicia um who was a Lithuanian lady who recounts some horrifying stories her sister had passed on to her about the previous previously mentioned violence and I found her actually because I was doing some research on my own family and it turned out that she had been staying in the same displaced persons camp in Germany as my grandmother. So we kind of struck up a conversation about this and then it seemed like she was willing to kind of talk in quite a lot of detail about her experiences and what she knew of her family's experiences. She was very open and very candid and I was very thankful for that. But in terms of finding the Russophone communities, then a lot of them are concentrated in certain areas. So there were parts of Estonia I knew I would be able to find Russian speakers more easily. Uh, Same with Latvia, same with Lithuania. Um, And in Chapter 2, I speak about going on border patrol with the border guards and finding the man there who was a cigarette Sorry, not a cigarette smuggler. Absolutely not a cigarette smuggler.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> he was a dream. Did, did, like speaking to him was so entertaining.
2: Could <laughs> you talk? Could
1: you lucky. talk about
2: that? C- it, it, it's cigarettes and spies. Um, part part of your chapter. So, uh, <laughs> how in the world did you end up doing that?
1: Um, I basically contacted the border guard to speak to them about it. Um, I didn't really. Yeah, I didn't. I, <laughs> I contacted the border guard. I went on patrol with them. They were trying to actually dissuade me from going. They said, Oh, it's, it's so boring. You won't enjoy it. You won't find anything. And then this man with like a tattoo of the Statue of Liberty crying, <laughs> like materializes and starts shouting. I almost thought they'd set it up for me. <laughs> like, it was just so wonderful. <laughs> yeah. I was like, This can't I'll, be real. <laughs> Well,
2: well I'll, I'll I'll let you breathe. I'll read a I'll read a passage because I think it's actually quite hilarious the way you you draw a scenario here. Um, you write one guard named Linas Tascunas, dressed in full camo shows me a recently recovered car. Its bumper, back and roof have been hollowed out. The men found hundreds of contraband cigarettes in each impressively obscured orifice. This is how local cigarette smugglers operate between Lithuania and Belarus, crossing the lines as regular drivers or passengers after inventing a bizarre variety of hideaways in which the smugglers secrete the goods. People smuggling is also an issue in the country, but less common in this particular region. Vietnamese people based in Russia, the national group most likely to attempt illegal migration and they simply walk over the border through the thick forests on foot. There, there's something absolutely tragicomic about this, right? So um, let, let me ask about um, the online. Um, Sorry, that was aspect. a very helpful
1: response. Yes, there is. Yeah, but I was thinking about it.
2: It just it reminds me of... Um, Comedy at the border. I mean, we, you know, we often think of the of the border as as creating this um, very deep sense of anxiety. You know, I live in San Diego, and I'm I'm always aware of the Tijuana situation here under the under the Trump regime. I mean, it was it was Gloria Anzaldúa who famously described the border as an open wound, um, and and so those I, I think those sensibilities um, really do exist. Um, so let me ask you about the online the online aspects of this. I, I noticed you did a lot of your research and, and interviewing, um, and of course there's a special Estonia uh, aspect to the contemporary situation—a real redefinition of 21st century citizenship. Um, so how, how does the media play into your story?
1: Um, well, I, I wanted to go back to the previous question actually, just because I didn't know how tragicomic the Vietnamese element was just because we had this Essex lorry incident in October last year and those were Vietnamese nationals who were found in the trailer in the UK Um, and I was thinking well it is tragicomic but also there's like a really horrible person personal cost I suppose and that hadn't happened at that point I was like okay there are Vietnamese people being smuggled in but you didn't really realize the extent of how awful it was.
2: At that point, what, was it what, was it a crime syndicate of some kind? It, it was organized crime of, of in one way or another.
1: That was from Bulgaria, so I think there was an idea that it could have been organized crime, and it was it was owned by an Irish citizen, I think. So I'm not really sure how that played in. Um, I think a lot of contraband cigarettes have actually ended up in Ireland too, from Eastern Europe. So there's there's something there.
2: <laughs> yeah. So my yes, question was about, was about the media because we, you know, media love to talk about themselves um, and the Baltic situation. I was struck many times in reading your book by the, the targeting of the region and, and the internalization of fraud and, and cyber crime and things like that. So what's the online aspect to this story of yours?
1: Um, I think it's, I mean, in the 21st century, obviously, it's a lot easier to kind of undermine existing narratives if you speak other people's languages. So there's, there have been incidences recorded of, say, uh, pro-Russia Twitter accounts or Twitter accounts coming from Russia trying to uh, impart pro-Brexit messages during the day of the Brexit referendum in the UK. Um Their influence is possibly overstated, but they exist nonetheless. And in the Baltics, because they have this native Russian population, then perhaps it's much easier to target people on a more individual level or also on a community level, because the communities there can't be quite calcified, because they're either Russian-speaking or they speak the native languages, um, especially in areas where it's a heavy concentration of Russian speakers. So... They tend to kind of consume Russian media. they spend time with other Russian people, and they kind of believe that maybe Russia would be better for them, and they're being victimized or oppressed in some way by the native populations and sometimes sure, there is like a degree of i wouldn't say kind of targeted victimization, but perhaps just people pretending they don't speak Russian even if they do because they don't want to admit that they do. Um, that they can and that can make them feel kind of victimized or oppressed in some way, and that's could, something could that you, can be played on.
2: Yeah, could could you flesh that out a little bit? So, in in all of the interviews that you did, where would you find this influence, the the impact of propaganda, to be strongest, and where might, let's say, people be pretending not to be affected by it, and how do you discriminate?
0: Um,
1: I think in Narva especially. Um, I mean, as I mentioned in the book, then everybody goes to Narva looking for kind of a Russian population or Russian-speaking population story. And often they'll find it because there are Russian, native Russian speakers there who do think they're being marginalized by the rest of Estonia. But a lot of them actually quite like being part of the European Union, too, depending on their citizenship. Um, there are parts of Tallinn. There are specific parts of Riga, and also Klaipeda. I think in western Lithuania has quite a heavy Russian presence. So it is region specific, maybe.
2: Yeah, and and to what extent? Let's say, do you? I was I was going to say believe in polls. It's a really bad question.
1: <laughs> um, lies damn lies <laughs> <in> statistics. <laughs>
2: right, it, it, exactly. Um, but to what extent do you find truth in the respondents, let's say, percentages? Um, there's all, there are all of these polls, and, and Levada is an example that you profile in Chapter 3 in your book. Um, one of the things that you discuss is the revival of positive views of Stalin. So, for example, it, it reaches a peak in, I think, 2016. There are some 46% of people, I don't remember where it was, but some, almost half, said they had felt respect and sympathy and admiration um, for Stalin. So how are you reading these polls and then, in some ways, trying to put a face on the numbers? Hmm,
1: that's a good question. I Does think that make With sense the Lavada Center, it's it's hard to know exactly what you're getting there, just because I don't know the methods that the Lavada Center use uses for conducting the polls. However, they are going to be the most reliable source you have, or from, of like data from Russia. <laughs> so it's difficult to ignore the Lavada polls in terms of putting a face to them. Then, um, well, do you mean and? Do you mean how I found the Stalin supporters in Russia,
2: or? Well, give me an example because it, the museums—I mean, there's an incredible, you know, competition between this institutionalized memory, the museums of occupation, the Stalin Museum, so you know, the branches of memorial and things like that. Um, so, I, I mean, it is about numbers, of course, that you can. Cite one statistic from one sociologist or another that residents of a particular area city, town, maybe even an entire country oppose a museum or oppose a political candidate or a, a but i mean how how do you actually flesh that out into human stories and narratives um so go with the
1: support for stalin um i mean it's it's hard to tell about like the reliability of respondents too you know because some of them might be scared that scared of the of how their responses are being recorded who's recording them so i feel like there could be an element of fear there but i think there has definitely been a top down concerted effort to maybe focus more on stalin's um industrial achievements say uh, as opposed to the gulag and that's and the the latter is kind of fading into obscurity at the moment. Um, in terms of visiting the museum and finding the people there, I think like there is this kind of pride almost in Russian achievements in World War II, well Soviet achievements rather in World War II. And I, in some ways, I think that is warranted, I suppose, because the West doesn't necessarily give the Soviet Union too much credit for winning World War II, despite their significant human losses way more than anybody else in the war. So there's sort of a kind of self-justification for that as well. Even if people do remember the Gulag, then they do need to be proud of what Stalin did for them and for everybody.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hmm. Okay.
2: Well, I, let me ask a, a, a different... Sorry, so, I don't know if
1: that answered the question. <laughs> probably.
2: No, I, 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 I'm, I'm always interested in polls because it it's one it's one thing to actually have the the numbers state that there's a seventy percent approval for Putin or whatever that there's skepticism toward nato it It's another thing to actually understand why what what is it that would um encourage one survey respondent over another to say that russophobia exists so i mean like for example and I won't dwell on this much more but um you have a lot of this data about survey respondents and the, the attitude of fear, this Russophobia rusefib- in the Baltic States, which from my experience is absolutely real. Um, you know, uh, you, you said it in, in some parts of the book um, that the opposition to, to Russia can be over, let's say overdrawn. And, and I'm wondering where and why that's the case. Um, it's more of a comment than a question, you know. Um, but I, I wondered if if you might take that on.
1: Well, I was thinking about maybe in the elections and Grudinin versus Navalny. So Navalny, Navalny's had a lot of exposure in the West as an opposition figure, but Grudinin has not, and yet he was the second he was receiving the second highest numbers in the polls. So I thought that was quite interesting, and also there's this kind of general sense that Putin's not popular inside Russia and has kind of seized power. And for sure there's been some manipulation of votes inside the, inside Russia, but I think people outside Russia tend to underestimate just how popular he actually is. So. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's fair enough and and we can leave it at that. Um, one of the chapters that I really love in your book is the fourth chapter, in which you talk about the art scene, um, and I I've actually never I've never quite read anything um, as extensive and, and as, as um, broadly drawn and as interesting as, as this. Um, what is the what is the culture? It's extraordinarily well done, um, and, and I wonder if you could give our listeners. Your impressions from the time that you spent there, let's say between 2014 and and the present, or 2014 and 2018, um, how has the scene really changed? And and how are the Baltic states, let's say Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, branding themselves, advertising themselves, trying to get um, more people, including emigrate journalists, um, (laughs) to to come and stay? more permanently.
1: That's a very complicated question. <laughs> it sort of three at once. So, two thousand around two thousand and fourteen, two thousand and thirteen, I was still in Russia. So, a lot of what I found fascinating there was kind of how youth culture was erupting, and I hadn't read anything about this in media at all at the time. So, it was sort of very much bottom up, um, bottom up culture, and it wasn't particularly. Um, I guess popular but it was very exciting and new and this kind of now this like youth culture like there are bands like I Speak Around that are household names and it was very kind of wonderful and powerful to see that in its kind of root stages but um, I guess seeing how that linked to the Baltics as well because there did seem to be some cross border cooperation in that regard like Tommy Cash who's one of Estonia's uh, most notable rappers, he collaborated with them, as well as a couple of other Russian uh, race staples. Um, but also, there's a lot of kind of... Is artification the word? like
2: <laughs> Not one that I use regularly.
1: <laughs> gentrification kind of prompted by making districts artistic, I guess. I'm going to actually look up whether that's a word.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, and uh, Well, I mean, would you say... That these communities, in some ways, continue Estonian legacies. I mean, of course, one of the big you know moments is the singing revolution, um, and, and and there and there is a way of playing multi-generationally on the old sort of traditions of the 1970s and 1980s. Is it is it? Would you say a break with the previous generation in in Estonia or How would you describe it if you give a kind of overview of the cultural scene?
1: I would say there's a lot of continuity. And there's a a lot of younger generations are kind of looking back to the pre-Soviet period and even the pre-Christian period. So there's this kind of sense of trying to reconnect to the land, um, folklore roots. Um, There's a kind of revival of paganism, too, in the regions. And that's been wonderfully satirized in a couple of works of fiction as well, just because people can overglorify that period too. Um,
2: right, right. The Lithuanian claim to Sanskrit and those sorts of yeah. things too, right? But, but they're also a way of drawing, drawing distinction, drawing difference. Um, do you have a favorite region? I mean, is there like a town or, or this is kind of a personal question, but is, is, there, a, is there a place gentrified or not subcultural or not that, ris- that that you respond to
1: um i think Tallinn's <laughs> always going to be my favorite baltic capital um a because it's coastal and b because it's estonia and i do feel most at home in estonia but i think also sarama too uh, that's where my family were from and it's one it's estonia's largest island and it has this kind of beautiful castle on it. I think Swedish or Teutonic. Um, I don't want to say anything incorrect on the podcast. Yeah,
2: yeah, no, it, it's not a, it's not a, it's more of a preference than an, an analytical question. So, I let me turn back to the analysis in okay. in your book, and um, we can move in, into some more geopolitical questions and great, great power questions. Um. So you talk about the threat from the East, obviously, and, and the danger, some perceive it, of um, Narva, for example, having a kind of Crimean situation or a Crimean option. Um, to what extent did you find these as real threats? I mean, and, and we're talking about the United States and NATO as well. But in the return to great power politics and in in the regard that the United States has for China, maybe even over Russia as a player on the world stage, um, how does this play out in the Baltics in in your experience?
1: I don't think there's necessarily a risk of a full-scale ground invasion in any sense at the moment. <laughs> I don't think it would make sense for Russia, and I don't think it would make sense for the rest of the world. It, I think there's still the necessity for caution there, purely because Russia can overpower the Baltic states. Um, But I think at the moment, even though troops are kind of somewhat more mass than usual on both sides of the borders, um, Russia's trying to simply juggle too much at the moment. And Crimea, maybe that was a situation whereby they were never going to let go they were never, never going to let go where the Black Sea Fleet was stationed, whereas the Baltic Sea Fleet never really import, was never really as important as the Black Sea Fleet. Um, great power politics-wise, Russia is trying to juggle, I suppose, the new China resurgence and its relationship with Europe at the same time. Uh, but I think like, the phrase that I really liked coming across while I was doing my interviews was Yalta-phobia, and that's a problem for the smaller nations because if we are going to be entering this new era of great power politics, then is the world going to be divided up in the same way that world leaders tried to do the same thing <laughs> all those years ago in Yalta? And it's a scary question for the Baltics, because who knows which side they're going to land on if that does happen.
2: Yeah. And and in your interviewing um, Russians, especially of Russians in Russia, but also in Latvia, does that play out differently differently? Uh, did you talk to people who were, let's say, forthcoming um, about the changes after the Crimea annexation?
1: Yeah, I mean, there did seem to be quite a lot of fear following Crimea, but it calmed down again after the immediate danger seemed to pass. So I think like there was a spike in anxiety or fear. Um, there's... One article I see, cite, I think, where I mentioned people trying to befriend others who have private jets and looking <laughs> in the forest for to identify herbs, you know, trying all of these survival, <laughs> like desperate survival tips and skills that they're trying to engage with. And I think there's much less of that now, now that the initial kind of post-Crimea wave of fear has started to die down.
2: Yeah. But we'll um, see. The- does does it and does it affect the art scene? I mean, I was actually in many ways struck by the language that you used. Um, as the former um, Moscow Times art, arts reporter, you know, you described Latvia as a musical superpower. I absolutely love that. Um, and and the sections that you have about um, the importance of of world class um, sopranos, directors, um, the recognition that, that they've received internationally. I mean, I personally, I love the music of, of the Estonian composer Arvo Part, and everyone should, um, but it, you know, this is, it, it's, it's a, it's a thing where people are actually sort of going about their everyday lives nonetheless. Um, and that was one of my impressions from, from your book. You know, it's not that they don't want to talk about, geopolitics in Putin, but there are other things going on, right?
1: Yeah, they strike me as very pragmatic in terms of their approach. They seem to be very aware that they need to maintain caution, but they're not going to put their lives on hold. And because they do have this kind of wide, wonderful diversity of influences, then they do have a lot to draw from. Um, especially, t- I mean, I write about this uh, sound artist, who went on this organ safari and just finding all of these old organs inside these churches across Lithuania that had been abandoned he was he just has such a fascinating story and what what is, were,
2: what is the, yeah sorry what is the story of the an organ safari could you could you tell talk, talk, tell us about that
1: um he just basically went acro- through throughout the churches in Lithuania and the Soviets never necessarily completely destroyed the churches sometimes parts were just boarded up And he would find things like bells and um, play the organs that had been left there and just kind of forgotten about over the Soviet period. And it was just, I don't know, I thought it was a very beautiful idea.
2: Um, And what about the comics books? (laughs) (laughs) I I have to ask about this. I know nothing about it, which is
1: why I ask. Oh, yeah, Kush comics. Um, They're just like this wonderful little comic company i found them the first time i went to latvia in 2014 and i was lucky enough to find them celebrating their 100th anniversary um when i went back to do my book research and through them i found this entire network of like so they were they were holding their anniversary in this building that was being repurposed for tax purposes i think essentially by a movement called free riga and there's just this whole network of places across the city that are kind of trying to breathe life back into the old Soviet and pre-Soviet buildings. And I think this is kind of intrinsically linked to outward migration too, Um, just because there's so much space and people need need to inhabit the properties. And it's kind of a mutually beneficial relationship. So there's just a lot of room there to do new things and engage in new activities and try and find new ways of, I guess, repurposing the past.
2: Yeah, and and I think Tommy Cash is a good example of of that. So, yeah. uh, could you could you introduce us to Tommy Cash? How has he gained his fame?
1: <laughs> uh, I I don't know when he actually started to gain it properly. Maybe in two thousand. It was two thousand and sixteen, two thousand and seventeen. But he kind of fit very comfortably into the. I suppose around two thousand and sixteen in the UK, at least. Um, there seemed to be this kind of fetishization of the quote-unquote New East area and you know post-Soviet chic. And he just kind of came along at the right time. He'd already been working before that. He's a very smart, audacious, and strange character. I was meeting him in Tallinn last year for a separate interview for Vice, I think. And he is he just has all of these wild ideas. Like one of his exhibits at that time, he was exhibiting his sperm in a tank in like one of the art museums there. <laughs> and now he wants to sell it to his fans. And he just has all of these like crazy ideas that are completely off the wall, but he'll try and go through with them no matter what.
2: <laughs> yeah, I I, I I love that. And I mean, I'll, I'll read a little passage for about Tommy Cash. You write, um, I think it's in one of your later chapters five on the Baltic future. Tommy Cash grew up on the or quote-unquote Detroit side of Tallinn, as he terms it. Kopli is a rundown area in the northeast of the Estonian capital, located a little further along the coast from the colorful wooden houses, independent coffee shops, and designers of the Teliskivi Creative City and the Hipster District, this is also in quotes, of Kalamaya. Kopli is a mass of graffitied and boarded-up stone and wood buildings and is yet to gentrify. This, like, reminds me of Berlin once upon a time. But (laughs) local authorities and businesses have been trying. Just two years ago, the area was incredibly dangerous, narcotics problems, homelessness and squatting, as well as dangerous and deadly fires and the occasional murder. All the fucking bums and junkies look like they're wearing the latest Balenciaga cash tells me. Two security guards were shot in the area as recently as 2017. And here's the history, and and you got it. Um, It was originally built for workers at the nearby Russo-Baltic shipyard in 1913 to 17, which is one of the most prominent features of Tsarist Russia's legacy in Estonia. Vast docks and shipbuilding basins, limestone production facilities, factories, and a service network made it one of the biggest industrial complexes in the Baltic Sea region at the time i I, I just laugh at this it's a century of history right
1: (laughs) i had to insert that quote from him he said that to me last year and i had to like get my (laughs) manuscript and like throw it in there (laughs) because it was just such a wonderful quote from him (laughs) but yeah, yeah it's just there's so much history in this tiny little place and yeah, Tsarist, Soviet, and also just Estonian too. Yeah, but yeah. it's also a problem that the Estonia, the Estonia has been suffering from a pretty serious uh, opioid e- epidemic in, in recent years. So I don't think that should be sniffed at too much either.
2: <laughs> right. And you mentioned the, the fentanyl uh, epidemic. Yeah. Is that still going on?
1: Um, I think they're moving towards fentanyl analogs now rather than – so, I, like there was a massive police operation in 2017 – that of most of the key players taken out, but now the analogs are making more of a mark. And I think some of them are coming through Latvia. Some of them are coming from the internet and they're going to deal with those because there is a gap in the market, but they've made progress since 2017.
2: Right. Well, um, let me, let me sort of move toward the end of your book by asking a, a broader question about Baltic agency and, um, the way in which I think there are similarities and differences, but also how are Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania defining themselves as Northern European? So, you know, American Sovietologists and post-Soviet transitologists always got in the habit of of lumping the Baltics together with Ukraine and Georgia and Armenia and so forth. But it, it really strikes me as a Scandinavian turn um, and, and maybe not not only on the terms of, of the Swedish banking system, um, but but there there is there is something going on there in which Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania are not Germany, not Russia. So you see this as as Nordic somehow, and will it continue?
1: I think Estonia has been the most successful in that sense, and it's probably aware aware of that. Um. I find Latvia's approach kind of strange because it seems to be kind of branding itself as more Nordic without taking the steps towards transparency, for example, that Estonia might, that Estonia's been doing. But I think according to the UN, then um, they are actually classed as Northern European states now. And that was probably a major success for them. (laughs) Um, I think when people like refer to Eastern Europe, it's seen as a more obscure, like former Warsaw Pact, former Soviet, you know, there's like that, Affiliation still with Russia, and to be defined and classed as Northern Europe or more Scandinavian now is something they regard as like a huge success. I also speak about the New Hansa and the Hanseatic League. So, in this era of great power politics, I suppose there are more alliances being formed between smaller nations to perhaps act as counterweights, and that's kind of interesting too, like the whole Baltic Sea region coming together to form slightly stronger bonds in this time.
0: And
2: and you seem, if I may say so, very optimistic in your prognosis um, about the Baltic states. I'll I'll read a passage toward the end in your conclusion and ask for your reaction. I don't meet a lot of optimists. (laughs) Um, (laughs) As an an academic and uh, and someone who works on cartography, I I write about cynical reasons. So um, I I find this refreshing, and I want to read a passage for you. Um, You write, in The Shadow in the East, toward the conclusion, attitudes and stories and histories, public, real, imaginary alike, are still shaped by the misery of the Second World War, which led these quote-unquote, bloodlands to particular devastation. And such beliefs still shape tensions in the present. A multifaceted understanding of history is vital. These are the countries where Nazis clashed with Stalin on the ground, where Jews were exterminated, where Europe meets Russia, and where nations from around the world still deploy foot soldiers in case conflict erupts once again. The Baltic nations are a victim, in a way, of the superpower's psychological need to manifest an East versus West polar mentality. But the Baltics are not simply people's caught between. They have the right to establish their own paths. They have a lot to offer the world. European, but still new and unencumbered by centuries of self-perpetuating structures, the future for the Baltic's can be bright and that's actually your last sentence so (laughs) oh my goodness i did say can not well (laughs) (laughs) why such optimism
1: um i think it's because they are an example of i mean for all of the kind of calcification of the communities then a lot of sorry i just hit my microphone there. um a lot of the there are Russians and native populations who live quite happily side by side in the EU and they don't want things to change. And at the same time, I mean, what I one of my major takeaways from Russia was how flexible the Russian Federation is at present, because they don't they've had all of these collapses and rebuildings and they're very pragmatic and the, with the corruption, I suppose, that that's there comes a certain amount of pragmatism. I think because the Baltics have had these new structures that they've had to establish in recent years, then it's kind of given them a de- degree of flexibility that, say, perhaps the UK doesn't have. So I don't know. I, I feel like they they are they're, they're a place of potential peace between East and West, and maybe opportunity too. As you can see, with I mean, you mentioned East only briefly, but maybe I am being overly optimistic. <laughs> Maybe right. it's going to be hell. <laughs> well,
2: well, if you if you inter, if you interviewed, let's say, um, you know, cybercrime people, um, IT specialists, maybe you'd get, maybe you'd have a different impression. But um, you know, I, I mean, it, it's it, it would be it would be the next book um, because the cyber attacks are absolutely real and and not just not just for Estonia, but um, Ukraine, of course, and, and elsewhere. Um, so, I, but I think the optimism that, that you share, it, correct me if I'm wrong, seems to be that there is a cultural life, and there's a socially liberal cultural life that continues despite all of these hybrid methods that that Russia, in its ultra conservative and yet avant garde kind of way, has developed.
1: I think avant garde is the right way. For- to put it, (laughs) is something that I kind of, I find very endearing about Russia's methods almost, which maybe sounds strange, but they do, it does, it does make you think a lot about things conceptually speaking, like what, what things mean. (laughs) And, um, I guess what needs to be weighed is the impact of those attacks versus the rhetoric surrounding them. So, for example, I feel like with the fake news rhetoric that started to emerge, then a lot of that breeded nihilism. And that's a response that maybe couldn't have been anticipated. But a lot of it's about how people are thinking as a result of those things that are happening. So maybe the attacks will prevent investment in a certain region, but there are places all over Europe that are getting hacked that don't want to admit to it. But I I don't know. It's like, this is a, there's a whole new podcast, like you said, a whole new book. <laughs>
2: yeah, and, and you know, and the and the ambassadors of, not to mention the presidents, but the ambassadors yeah. don't want to don't want to profile risk specialists and yeah, exactly, and, and have that kind of um, balanced assessment of um, you know the dangers of of investing in the country. Certainly, that's part of the public relations machine. Well, look, um, let me ask you about your current work and, and what projects you imagine optimistic or not for the future.
1: Um, so good question again, at the moment, I'm just trying to work on book promotion, doing things like podcasts for the first time in my life, as you can probably tell. (laughs) Um, and that, and then giving presentations as well in London and around the UK, um, But I'm also working on articles and getting back into freelance life again. So right now I'm working on a piece for Euronews and another piece for The Spectator. Um, Yeah, I'm just trying to get my commissions out and start making money again, which I haven't been able to do for a while.
2: (laughs) Well, um, Alita Naylor has joined us here on the New Books Network. Alita Naylor is the author of The Shadow in the East. Vladimir Putin and the New Baltic Front, published by Ivy Taurus in 2020. I want to thank you for joining us on the podcast today.
1: Thank you for having me.